Good morning, everyone. Would you take your bulletins today and stand as we read together our text together from Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verses 19 through 22. This will be the sixth message in the series on the all-seeing God, and the title of it is The Holy Justice of God. I ask that each of you come prayerfully before the worship service today, asking that God would give me the ability to make this text of Scripture as clear as I possibly can, and that he give you the ability to understand this passage of Scripture. This is hard doctrine in many cases, all right? Psalm 139, beginning in verse 19. Ready? Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. You may be seated. As we mentioned at the outset of this series of messages, many of the Jewish leaders in the time of Christ felt that this psalm of David even excelled his 23rd psalm. It sets forth the basic attributes of the character and being of God. Keep your Bibles open today as we're going to examine nearly every word in the passage that we've read this morning. But briefly in review, David has set forth the omniscience of God, his all-knowingness in verses 1 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 12, he has presented to us the omnipresence of God. That God is everywhere. He not only knows everything, but He is everywhere. And then in verses 12 uh, through 16, or see, 12 through 18, He has presented to us the all-knowingness of God, or the omnipresence, the omniscience, and then the omnipotence of God, particularly in those latter verses. Get it straight here in your thinking. So we're dealing now at this point with a God who possesses absolute perfection. Nothing about him is lacking. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. And he's all-powerful to bring about what his will and purpose is and what he's designed. 
Now, in light of that, then David now moves in to another attribute of God, and that is his holy justice. Since God possesses all of his other perfections, he alone has the sole right to determine what is right and wrong. And that whatever he says or does is right. Shall not the God of the universe do right? Therefore, he, in his judgments, is enabled to judge perfectly. So what he then sets forth, we as finite creatures must bow before and acknowledge this, and in doing so, worship him. We cannot call the God that David has described thus far as unjust and unfair in any manner because he alone has possession of all the facts Because he alone is everywhere, all-knowing, and has the ability to bring to pass what his will is. Now let's move in to this passage of Scripture then, which has caused much concern, both inside and outside the community of Christianity. And it involves uh, several questions. One of the main ones is, how can God be a good God and a wrathful God at the same time? How can God be a loving God and a hating God at the same time? And we'll have to try to work through this in great detail. So we're going to have to have your undivided attention. Begin with me in verse 19, where David says, Surely thou or you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore... You bloody men. The first part in the expression, surely thou wilt slay the wicked. David now concludes from the doctrine of God's being and character that ruin will certainly be the end of the wicked. Who are the wicked? They are those that refuse to be corrected. They are those that refuse to bow and give God glory and acknowledge His worthiness. So this statement that we are reading in verses 19 uh, through 22 is not an isolated statement of David. It is a conclusion of what David has previously described that God is like. Proverbs 29.1 says, let me quote it for us, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, and suddenly shall be destroyed, and that without remedy. The wicked are those who harden their neck against God's reproof believing that they know more than God, and that if they were God, this is the way things would be done. They refuse to acknowledge the being that David has set forth. 
No matter how long God may permit the wicked to prosper, even for a while, surely he will slay them at last. Their day is coming. Now then, let me make a sort of an application here in passing, and I dare not get too long off on this, lest that the message run beyond the desired length of time. Whenever we see sin reigning, we may assure that destruction is coming. This applies both to individuals and nations. Crimes committed in the face of the judge will not go unpunished. You can see it in the life of an individual. If that individual is being permitted to go on in a hardened state, against God, setting their neck against the character of God's being, put it down, destruction is coming. Make the brief application, Pastor. I'll make it to my own nation that I love. This nation seems to be sinning unrestrained. That God seems to have lifted His restraint off of this country. And everything which the Bible holds to be holy and just and good, leaders in the churches, in the political realm, in the military realm, in the economic realm, are saying, no, that is not holy, just, and good. We'll have nothing to do with it. Now put it down, unless checked, the nation is headed into destruction. With earthly judges and rulers, sin may go unpunished for two reasons. Number one, the judge may not have enough evidence to punish. And he has to dismiss the case. And number two, the judge, as an earthly ruler, may not have enough courage or zeal to punish. But this cannot happen in the case of the divine judge. The divine judge of the universe, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, everywhere, has sufficient evidence to judge all sinners. And he has such a love of holiness and hatred of that which would harm his creation, he will destroy that which seeks to destroy it. Second part of verse 19. David says in light of this, Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. As we desire the presence of the Holy God to be always near us, so we should desire the presence of ungodly men to be removed as far as possible away from us. 
Let's move now to verse 20. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. The first expression, they speak against thee or you wickedly. We are here given the reason why God would destroy the wicked. What is it? They speak against him. They are anti-God. They do not like to retain God in their thinking. Or else, if they are religious in any nature, they will make an idol and limit God in some dimension that would make him comfortable with themselves. Notice they not only speak against him, but verse 20, and they take your name in vain. And that's just not using profanity. You can use the name of God in a profane way. And it's done all the time. Psalm 73 in verse 9. Quote, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. This is what God sees as he observes the created order of fallen Adam. Ever since man fell into sin in the garden, he and his offspring have expressed their rebellion against God in the form of hard speech, taking his name in vain. In the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, we read, And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's quite a profound statement. The Lord will bring the ungodly to judgment. He not only has the full comprehension of who they are and what they are doing, because he alone is everywhere, but he has the power to bring it to pass. And he will not do like some earthly judges that when the individual is obviously guilty, they're just too meek and too loving to say, well, I really can't judge this person and dismiss him from the court. God is not like that. Look at the second part of the statement in verse 20. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. Isn't it sad that God would give men their tongues, and then they use them to curse their Creator. What would you mothers think that if after carrying a child for nine months and going through all the convenience, all the morning sickness, 
of all of the things that's involved in uh, delivering a child in pregnancy, what would you think if that child could speak and it came right out of your womb and started cussing you? David says that he came forth from his mother's womb speaking lies. God gives men tongues to speak, and they use those tongues in return to curse their Creator. God knows that. He takes notice of it. And just because it's rampant in a given culture, don't think that God is just so loving that He is just turning His head and He said, well, they're just, if they knew better, why, they wouldn't do that. No, He is a judge who knows all about them, and He has the power and the will to bring them to justice. This is the holy justice of God. Now verse 21. Here is David's conclusion about this. Since God alone has the ability to judge, because He alone has all the facts, David says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I would have you note, for interpretive purposes, that this in the Hebrew language is what is known as Hebrew parallelism. We don't speak like that in English. But in Hebrew, they will make a statement of fact or whatever, and then they'll come right back and repeat the same meaning under different phraseology. All right? Now let's watch this. Do not I hate them, O Lord. That means the same thing as, am I not grieved with those, O Lord. In other words... The latter sentence helps us to understand David's meaning of hatred. We are too prone to read into, in our English, hatred as being just basically ill will. Here we're having hatred defined as a grief, look on, that hate thee or that rise up against thee. Let's take the first expression in verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. The Bible tells us that God alone is holy. And he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And the same Bible says, without holiness shall no man see the Lord. What is holiness, then? It's used in connection with sanctification or that which is set apart from the ordinary. Now listen as we give a running definition of holiness as it relates to the character of God. Holiness is to love what God loves. Holiness is to hate what God hates. Holiness is to desire what God desires. 
Holiness is to grieve over what grieves God. Holiness is to be angry at what angers God. Holiness is to enjoy what God enjoys. In essence, to share in the character and temperament of God. If God has these characteristics, then to be holy is to side with God and desire what He desires and to be like Him. The believer is then to side with God against the wicked. Therefore, listen, it is our duty to hate those who hate God. Now, boy, if that statement would get out over TV today, we'd have a visit from the local newscasters. Boy, that's a controversial subject. That's a controversial statement. David made it thousands of years ago. A man, Brother Pete, after God's what? Own heart. I repeat, it is the duty of a godly person to hate that which is ungodly. The prophet Jehu asked the question in 2 Chronicles 19.2, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? It's in the Bible. Psalm 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Another statement in the Bible. I'll go back over this and let's put it in this, in, in this phraseology. If you don't love what God loves, you're not holy. I don't care how religious you are. And without holiness, you're not going to see God. If you don't hate what God hates, you're not holy. And you're not going to see God. If you don't desire what God desires, you're not holy. And you will not see God. If you do not grieve over what grieves God, you're not holy. And you won't see God. If you do not become angry as to what God is angered at, you are not holy. And you will not see God. If you do not enjoy what God enjoys, you're not holy. And you will not see God. Hmm? Can't hide ourselves under religious, religious attitudes, religious ordinances, going to church, saying a little prayer here and there, and dropping something in the offering plate, and thinking, now this is holiness. No, we must be like God. And Brother Clint, that's why God told, or rather Jesus told a man named Nicodemus, Nicodemus, except you be born again, you can't see the kingdom. You can't enter it. You cannot become like God unless there's a radical transformation of your nature 
changing you from a love of sin to a love of what God loves. Look at the next part of the sentence of the parallel statement. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? You see, these people that David are describing are openly and verbally taking their stand against God. They're easy to identify. The Hebrew parallelism used here defines hate for us as anger manifesting itself in grief and disgust. Say that again. Hate is defined in the text as anger manifesting itself in grief and disgust. Albert Barnes, an American pastor-teacher of the 19th century, gives this explanation. I quote, The expression here, grieved, explains the meaning of the word hate in the former member of the verse. It is not that hatred which is followed by malignity or ill will. It is that which is accompanied with grief, pain of heart, pity, and sorrow. So the Lord looked on men in Mark 3, 5, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved over the hardness of their hearts. The word used here, however, contains also the idea of being disgusted with, of loathing of nauseating. The feeling referred to is anger, conscious disgust at such conduct, grief, pain, sorrow, that men should evince such feelings toward their Maker. End of quote. I, I hope there's some light beginning to come out thus far into what we're saying as to what it talks about when David uses the term hatred. We could say, you make me sick at my stomach. Jesus, with anger, was grieved or disgusted over the hardness of the heart of those in his audience. Now here we're coming to a question now. Is it possible to be loving towards sinners to do good to them at the same time and to hate them for their sin? Hmm? How do you answer that? I'll repeat the question. Is it possible to be loving towards sinners to do good to them at the same time and hate them for their sin? I did not say hate their sin. I said hate them. 
And I answer yes, because the Bible teaches both. Our problem is that we are conditioned to think mostly in terms of either or, rather than in terms of both and. I'm told that in an analog circuitry of electronics that you're dealing with degrees as the way the circuit operates, but in a digital, it's either on, off, either or. Those of you who are familiar with that will understand. That is, you turn on a digital system and it's either on or it's off. And then you have the tracks that play different things. It's track one, track two, track three, either or. Analog system, you can adjust it and raise and lower. We, we our minds as humans are conditioned to think that if if God is loving, he cannot be hateful. Somehow we have a problem. Do we not? Of saying, then, if, how can a Christian be loving and hateful at the same time? So, this passage here has to be unfolded in some manner. Does the Bible teach both? Or is it an either-or? We think in terms that it must either be black or white. Day or night. Night or darkness. Love or hate. When we compare the words of David here in Psalm 139 with Jesus' words, it appears on the service that we have a contradiction. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, would you? Verses 43 through 48. Give you time to locate it. Matthew 5, 43-48. Jesus said, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that what? What does it say? Hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Or you can be the model. You don't do these things in order to become a child. You, this is the, you're modeling your Father who is in heaven. Look on. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publican so. Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, <laughs> is perfect. Hmm? You ever read that passage of Scripture and then come across David's words? I hate those who hate God. 
Are we dealing with a contradiction here? In some way, the Bible affirms that a loving God can, at the same time, hate sinners. To understand how it is necessary to do some word studies. And um, I'm not a professor here teaching a class in theology, although there's some theology going forth. If you students want to take some notes, there's some interesting definitions coming up that might be of help to help you grasp this, to be able to share with your family and your neighbors and things of this to answer this thorny question of being hateful toward others as God is. If the Bible affirms that a loving God can hate sinners, then it's necessary to do some word studies. And first, we'll examine the word studies relating to God's moral nature. Let's consider first the word benevolence, as it relates to the moral being of God. What does benevolence mean? It means a disposition. Now, what is a disposition? It's something that you are disposed like. I'm disposed to be like this. Benevolence is a disposition to do good, Goodwill. Peace on earth and what? Goodwill. That was God's message at the birth of the Savior. He was saying to mankind, I am a benevolent God bestowing an act of goodwill upon you. God is a benevolent, loving God. 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Get that? So one of the characteristics of God's moral being is He's benevolent. Secondly, He's beneficent. That's spelled B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-T. This is a related word. And it means the act of doing good. God is not only basically good, He acts out His goodness. God does beneficent things. 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Matthew 5:45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for He maketh His Son to rise on the evil, on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. God is a good God and demonstrates His beneficence toward both the good and the evil. It does not have to be spread out evenly because He's sovereign. Just with a matter of rain. 
He may give one area an abundance of rain and another area withhold hardly any rain. But the people that live in each one of those areas, be they believers or unbelievers, they're both the objects of God's goodness. You say, well, that's not right because if he doesn't send rain, people are going to suffer. Wait, 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 wait. Who are you to determine whether God is fair or unjust because he withholds rain? You're not the judge. You don't possess all knowledge. You're not everywhere to see the intricate details of what's going on. Only God is there to do that. And therefore, he alone has the power to send the rain or withhold the rain. And we have to bow and acknowledge that. And at the same time, we're told, Oh, Heavenly Father, send rain. Hmm? Believing only he can do it. The next word as it relates to God's moral nature is complacency. C-O-M-P-L-A-C-E-N-C-Y. Complacency. What does that mean? It is that which brings pleasure, joy, and satisfaction. God enjoys a love of complacent Pleasure in that which is beautiful and good. I'm going to make the statement again, and then we'll take you to the verse that shows that. God enjoys a love of complacent pleasure in that which is beautiful and good. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 in the created order, we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The end of God's creative acts. And he looks on all that he has created. And he has a complacency in that it gives him pleasure to see what he has done and everything is good and beautiful. Nothing ugly, nothing undefiling or defiling. God took complacency in his acts of creation. They bring him pleasure, joy, and satisfaction. Now then, the next word is it, really, it brings into the moral character of God is displacency. This is also found bound up within the being of God's nature. Displacency is that which brings displeasure, grief, and dissatisfaction. God can look upon that which he has created and it can bring him great pleasure and satisfaction. But he also possesses within his moral being a spirit of displacency in that which can bring his displeasure, his grief, and his dissatisfaction. God grieves with a hatred of 
displacent displeasure at that which is wicked and sinful. Look over in Genesis chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7, and here we see this, the grounds for this statement that we have just made. God can look at that created order that as it came forth from his hands and it gave him great satisfaction. But we know what happened to that. Sin entered in to that order. Now watch in Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 7. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continuously, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Now watch, comma, and it, what? Grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. This is no longer the beautiful created order headed up by the creature man that came forth in the Garden of Eden. This is wicked man. Under the curse of God, the whole earth is under His curse now because He is not only a complacent God, He is a displacent God. He not only gains satisfaction from that which is holy, just, and good, but He is grieved and disgusted over that which is unholy and is not good and is unjust. In the same being, we have these characteristics brought out. So that when any moral creature would seek to disrupt and destroy the beauty that exists in God's creation, God's love for himself and his creation is manifested in a holy wrath upon that which is wicked and destructive. There's a passage that comes to my mind. I can't quote it, but it's in the book of Revelation. I will destroy them that destroy the earth. Hmm? A lot of ramifications there that Christians don't take seriously enough. That beautiful created order of God's Creation at the end of the six days. Now then, look at it thousands of years later. What the hands of destructive men have done to it. Not only the physical characteristics of it, but the moral characteristics of how men have hated and killed and raped and done every sort of evil that man can do. And it repented God that he had ever made man. I haven't time to deal with God's repentance. Only showing, Brother Clint, that God not only is a complacent God, taking pleasure in that which is good, he is a displacent God in taking displeasure in that which is evil and that which grieves him.
Now let's move to the other side of the coin. We've seen God's moral nature. Let's consider now what man's moral nature is. Look at the word malevolence, opposite of benevolence, spelled M-A-L-E-V-O-L-E-N-C-E. Man's basic nature is malevolent. What does that mean? It means, Brother Jim, that he has a disposition to do evil. And ill will is the meaning of that. Man, as fallen, is a malevolent, selfish creature. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the what? Of the glory of God. Now, what's God's glory? It's His moral character, as we have defined it. Benevolent, beneficent, complacent, displacent, many more things. Man's moral character is the very opposite as a fallen creature. He has a malevolent, a disposition in his nature to do evil. He's a selfish creature, and therefore it doesn't bother him to destroy other things if it will advance his own interest. Second Timothy 3, 4. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of who? God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Secondly, man does malevolent, selfish things. His nature is not only selfish, but he does selfish things. 2 Timothy 3, 2 and 4. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are what? Good. Who is God? He's good. Who are His people? They are good. But the wicked despise that which is good and don't want to be around them, Brother Pete. That's the reason that our church building's not filled this morning. Does it bother you as a Christian people don't want to be around you? Hmm? <laughs> I sometimes wonder, do, do I need deodorant spray or what is it? Everybody knows I've got this loving disposition, kind and handsome and generous. Maybe I need to look in the mirror again. Maybe there's something that's not right about me. No. The problem is that when people find out, oh, you're a preacher. Oh, okay. Well, I've got this appointment I need to make. People don't love to be around that which God says is good and God delights in. Because we, as His people, reflect the character of His moral being. Pick up the text again 
in 2 Timothy. Despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Man is a malevolent being. He does malevolent, selfish things. Now, thirdly, man enjoys a complacent pleasure in that which is wicked and sinful. It's the very opposite. Are you catching on? It's the very opposite of what God is and what God is like. Romans chapter 1, verses 21-32. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. And as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient." being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Man instinctively knows there is a God. He can't eradicate that out of his mind. So he has to change this God into someone that's like himself. And everybody has their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of all. We've all gone to our own way. Every human being has their set sins that they enjoy. And they can't be at ease with this God that David has described. So they've got to change him into someone that would accommodate their sin. They know that God's judgment, that those who do such things, that God says they're worthy of death. That's what the judge says. But they not only know that, but they do those things, and they love to hang out with those who do those things. They take pleasure in others that do these things. Fourthly, man grieves with a hatred of displacent displeasure toward that which is holy, just, and good, 
as expressed in God's law as found in the Bible. Not only is man complacent, that is, he loves himself and he loves his pleasure, but he has a displacent nature in his character in which that he is disposed in hatred toward that which is holy, just, and good. How in the world, then, is any unholy person going to be changed to spend eternity in heaven? You know, it's, have you noticed that even yet in our culture, though we are departing from God uh, like uh, on a landslide, have you noticed that, that when somebody dies, everybody goes to heaven? Hmm? Everybody goes there. How could this have developed? How could this thinking have come about? Because you have to leave the revelation of the God of the Bible and create other gods. So men come up with their idea of what would heaven be like for me? And then the old country song that came out here about 12 years ago, Heaven is just a sin away. Hmm? How many of you ever, ever heard that? Just Heaven is just a sin away. Talking about the sin of adultery. An extramarital sex. Hmm? Now that person then has defined their heaven, and that's where, how they want to spend eternity. So when old Joe, who has lived an ungodly life, dies, then all he needs is a preacher who will pronounce him that he's gone to heaven. His heaven is heaven. In a poll taken years ago about what people thought heaven would be like, where one lady said it would be like uh, being able to eat all the chocolate I could eat and not get fat. And another one said, heaven is going to be like a big ball game where I can hit one of God's high fast balls over the park. On and on and on. Listen, heaven is holy. The only thing that enters into heaven is that which pleases God. Would you have God take you into heaven like you are right now? Hmm? It would defile heaven. Yes, we as believers are justified in His sight, but there is yet the work of the Spirit to change our nature into perfection. And that He will do. But if God took any sinner into heaven in a defiled state, it would defile heaven itself and, in essence, defile God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that are in the flesh, unregenerate. Unregenerate, wicked men cannot please God because they don't love His laws and His ways. Now, whenever God or any moral creature would seek to disrupt 
and destroy man's selfish love of himself and his own selfish pleasure, man's will manifests an unholy wrath toward that being, either through the means of a passive indifference or an active hostility. Don't think that you've got to be out here cursing God to be an ungodly person. All you've got to do is when you hear and know about God is just to treat Him as if He doesn't exist. Hmm? Just ignore Him and live your life the way you want to live it, however that is expressed. Just leave God out of the life. And that's a manifestation that you don't love God. Master, are there few that be saved? Indifference toward God. John 18:37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now watch Pilate's indifference. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Don't have a problem. This guy's not an insurrectionist, but I'm not interested in him. He's one of these philosophers. An indifferent response to that which is good. But consider another response in Acts 7, 54 through 58. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Indifferent attitude of Pilate, hostile attitude toward the Jews of Stephen. Neither one of them wanted anything to do with the character of the God that David is describing. Let's bring this to a summary. Thus God, who is loving and delights in that which is beautiful. Now listen, take this home with you. Must hate that which would seek to destroy that which is beautiful. He must do it. Or else he forfeits his very character. This is why he's angry with sin and sinners every day. I believe this explanation fits the biblical data better than the popular contemporary explanation. And you've all heard it. You've used it. I used to use it. But it's not true that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. 
Hmm? That is not taught in the Bible. This in explanation is, and incidentally, let me back up here. God doesn't send adultery to hell. He sends the adulterer. He sends the person, not the action. So the idea that God loves the sinner, but he just hates the sin, that is not that which is compatible with the rounded teaching of God's Word. I believe this explanation is short-sighted and flawed for three reasons. And they're brief. First reason, this idea is wrong. The person's sinful acts cannot be separated from his moral character. And his moral character cannot be separated from his human nature or disposition. Secondly, the sinner's person is not a beautiful thing, seeing it is sinful. Thirdly, as I've referred to, God does not punish sin's actions, but the person who does the action. So then, it's best to then see that this loving God, who takes pleasure in that which is good, can at the same time be disgusted and hateful toward that which is ugly and evil. Do you love what God loves? Do you love what God hates? That's what a Christian is. Thus David concludes in verse 22. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Again, these are open individuals who have come out publicly. We are anti-God. Those who are perceived to be the open enemies of God, listen, we may lawfully hate without breaking the law of love. Again, sins directed against God should affect us as much and more than sins directed against us. What does it take to get you riled up? Hmm? Is it not sad that in most of our cases it's things which happen to us? David says here, I hate them who hate you. Sins directed against God should affect us greater than sins committed toward us. And lastly, wickedness may bring men into favor with the ungodly, but it excludes them from the fellowship of the Lord. Revelation 22, 14 and 15 Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. 
That's what the eternal state is going to be like. Likened into a great city with walls. And inside you find nothing but godly people. Beautiful people. And outside you find nothing but dogs. Ungodly people. Who incidentally would not be happy for one minute within the city because their nature would not permit them to do so. If you took a wicked person as they are here on earth and put them into heaven, they'd be looking for a window to jump out of in a minute's time. They don't like this place. So God says, what I'm going to do throughout all eternity is that which I have, follow me, recreated and have made it beautiful. I'm going to place those beings on a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I'm going to take all of these others who hate me, hate everything I stand for, all of that which is holy, just, and good, and I'm going to quarantine them in an eternal prison. And they're going to be without the gates of the city. And they'll never be permitted to enter in to that city again and defile it. I hope that we've done justice not only to this text, but have tried to do justice to the totality of the revelation of God. That God can so love the world that He gave His only begotten Son as an act of beneficence toward the world of fallen mankind, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You believe in Him today? You love Jesus today? You love that which is holy, just, and good? The one who could stand before the multitudes and say, Which one of you convinces me of sin? Which one of you can find a fault in Jesus? I can. Trust Him today as your own Lord and Savior. He welcomes sinners to come to Him. Hmm? Wait a minute, how can the judge who's condemned me, how could He welcome me? Because substitution has opened up a way for you to come. The judge says, come, come, come. And you'll find him to be a loving, kind, and just judge. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that we may be able to say with David that we stand for you. And whoever takes an open, verbal, visible stand against you, that it can make us disgusted with a hatred toward them. Because you have that same attitude. Bless your word. Bless our fellowship together. In Christ's name. Amen.